Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. There are few people who've done what Allie Raisman has. At 24 years old, she has competed in four world championships and two Olympic Games. She's made sports history as the first American gymnast to win a gold medal for the floor exercise. Indeed, Allie has taken home the gold from every major competition in which she's competed. But Allie's heroism extends beyond her tremendous athletic achievements. In the last year, she's become one of the most powerful voices and faces in the Me Too movement, speaking out against a long history of abuses in her sport and demanding accountability from leadership. Allie may be young, but she is a woman of stunning strength. Born and raised in the suburbs of Boston, Allie began practicing gymnastics pretty much as soon as she could walk. Like many little girls of her era, she was inspired by the legendary Magnificent Seven gymnasts who won the 1996 Olympics. By 2012, Allie had made it on to another historic gymnastics team, the Fierce Five. As captain, she led her team to first place at the 2012 London Olympics and took home two more medals herself. Four years later, she did it again, leading the final five gymnasts to victory in Rio de Janeiro. But Allie wasn't done, not even close. In 2017, Allie and her teammates broke the silence of a long-held secret in the gymnastics world. She was one of hundreds of gymnasts who spoke up about the sexual abuse they had suffered at the hands of Larry Nasser, the former team doctor for USA Gymnastics. Allie made a surprise appearance at Nasser's sentencing, delivering a searing 13-minute victim impact statement directly to the man himself. Next, she raised a lawsuit against both USA Gymnastics and the U.S. Olympic Committee for their failure to protect her and so many other athletes who suffered at the hands of Nasser's abuse. She was determined to change the very culture of gymnastics, to stand up for survivors, and to make the sport safe for the next generation of athletes. Allie's fight is far from over, and she knows it. It will take nothing short of a revolution to make this kind of change. But with Allie leading the charge, there's no question of the outcome. Allie Raisman always wins. Allie Raisman, thank you so much for being a guest on Unstyled today. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'd love to talk about the very beginning. Your interest in gymnastics began with your mom, and she was actually a gymnast. She was. She was a high school gymnast, Mm -hmm. and my dad did, he did hockey and he did baseball, and um, I'm the oldest of four kids, so my parents kind of just threw me in as many sports as I would do, and I just, I was very active as a kid. I had a lot of energy, and I did figure skating, I did Were you good at it? I don't remember. I, I don't remember. That but seems like a really hard sport. Very hard. I can't walk on the ice at all now. I can't I, it's very, very hard. <laughs> it's very, very difficult. I watch it. I love watching figure skating. I'm amazed by them. But I did soccer. I did T ball. I mean, I did like tennis. All these things. And I just I started gymnastics when I was 
around 18 months old. So I was absolutely obsessed with it. And, you know, obviously at that time you can't do anything. So your mom just brings you around. It's like mommy and me classes. And I don't know, I just fell in love with it. And then at the age of eight, I stopped my other sports. It was I chose between gymnastics and soccer because my gymnastics schedule got so hectic, which when I look back now, it's a little absurd. At eight years old, I was doing so many hours that I had to stop doing soccer in order to keep up. But you know, I loved it so much. And at that point, it didn't seem like a big deal to me. It seemed like a no brainer to me. And I uh, picked gymnastics. But you know, my dad used to coach me in soccer and baseball and basketball when I was younger. So it was really sweet and really fun to be able to spend that time with him. And I'm very grateful that he was able to do that because I think that's pretty cool. But don't you think like, I mean, you think it's crazy that at eight years old, you had that kind of schedule, but it kind of needed to prepare you for like the discipline and the and the pressure of like your practice and, and training, I'm sure is like incredibly demanding, you know, in terms of your schedule. So you probably needed to start preparing for that at eight years old in order to sort of like be ready for that kind of, you know, for that kind of responsibility. Yeah. I mean, when I was eight years old, that was around the same time that I had figured out what the Olympics was. I watched the 1996 Olympic gymnastics team and Obviously, at the time when it actually aired live, I was two years old. So my mom had a VHS tape that my grandfather had actually just recorded. And she just found it in a box one day at home and put it in. And little did she know that tape would totally change my life because I was obsessed with it. I watched it every single day. I had like every single score memorized. I knew right then and there that I wanted to be at the Olympics one day, but I had no idea how hard it would be to get there. You know, even at eight years old, I didn't I didn't really know, you know, that I was like working really hard in so many hours. It was just all day at school. I wanted to be at the gym. And, you know, just like when you see an eight-year-old, they just love, you know, hopefully when you see an eight-year-old, you see them, they're really happy and full of life. And I just, I loved it so much. It just it was a no-brainer for me to want to be at the gym and to train as much as I could. It was fun for me, but I was also don't want people to think I was the best one at all. Um, I struggled. Fourth place. Yeah, I got fourth place a lot, yeah. When I was six years old, I was on pre-team, which is before you compete, and my whole entire group got to move up to the next level except for me. I could not get my run up back handspring on floor. I was struggling so much, and then it was the only one that got held back, but I didn't realize that. You know, Thankfully, my mom just told me <laughs> that I was lucky I got to try it again. I didn't even really realize what was going on. Do you think she did that so you wouldn't get discouraged? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, my parents had no idea I was going to be that good at gymnastics. I mean, even like when I was older and I told them when I was, I remember I was, when I was 10 years old, we were watching the 2004 Olympics and they showed Carly Patterson's mom in the audience and Carly Patterson was the all around Olympic champion. And they showed Carly's mom in the audience looking really nervous and, you know, just freaking out, of course, watching her daughter compete. And my mom you know, when I was 10 years old, she had absolutely no idea that I wanted to be there. And she said, wow, I'm so glad I'll never have to experience that one day because it must be so scary watching your daughter compete. And I remember I got so mad at her <laughs> because but she was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea that you wanted to go to the Olympics. Of course, I'll support you. But of course, at the time, you know, she thought I was just probably crazy. But I mean, she obviously respected the fact I was so determined, but never did she once imagine it would actually happen. And then now I joke that 
it's karma because she was shown in the audience looking more terrified. So it's like we joke about that because she had, you know, we were watching Carly's mom and she was literally like, I'm so glad I'll never have to experience that. And then she was shown. Your mom actually said that. Yeah, but she wasn't doing it to be, you know, she just kind of said it out loud. Just she had no idea that I wanted to be there. And then when I was 10, that was the moment she realized I wanted to go to the Olympics. And then she's always been supportive, but I, I just... You know, she never actually, I'm sure in her mind, realized it was going to really happen. Well, you hear a lot of stories about, you know, these sort of like, quote, stage moms. But you were really self-motivated from a really early age. I was. It was actually almost like the opposite. My parents were the opposite of like stage parents because it was almost to the point where I would work too much. And, you know, my mom would often check in with my coaches and be like, just so you know, she is exhausted. And because I was always the type of kid I never wanted to complain, I always wanted to work really hard. And I really loved it. And I really wanted to be the best I could be. But then when I would come home, I would be absolutely exhausted. And so it was it was a good balance between having coaches that would push you, but then having my parents who were like, we see how she is at home. You know, she might have energy at the gym, but then when she gets home, she's absolutely exhausted. So my mom would when she needed to sort of step in and just be like she's you know because if I was like 12 I was I was too nervous I didn't want to say I'm really tired so she would kind of be that person to step in for me just because you never want to like admit you're tired when you're around such great gymnasts and it was so fun to be at the gym I never wanted to miss practice but you know there were times where my mom would say you look exhausted I think you should stay home so it was the opposite and I'm very how old were you then I was I mean honestly even just leading up to the 2016 Olympics when I was 22 I mean there were days where my mom would be like you just need a day off and I was like there's no way I can take a day off but she was right you know there are times where even if you feel like you have so much work if you're exhausted it is better to get that rest so that you're able to to do the best that you can do. Because if you're exhausted, then you're risking getting hurt or just not doing it the best that you can do. So it is definitely having a balance is very important. And where do you think that that kind of drive comes from? I think that, you know, for high achievers, you know, people that are just like, you know, have tremendous success. I love talking with them about just where they're where their energy and where their motivation comes from and what kind of pushes them. And I think we're going to talk, obviously, a lot about leadership and, you know, where your courage to do the things that you've done and that you've spoken out about over the last year comes from. But I do think it's connected to this sort of force within you about this mission that you have about who you are and, you know, what you want your contribution to your industry, to culture, to women, what you want that to be. But where do you think that motivation to work so hard comes from? I mean, I feel like I was born with it, but I also feel like in order to work hard, I mean, not always, but I think it it really helps, in my opinion, to love what you're doing, to want to work hard at it. You know, there are a lot of things that, you know, like if I started playing another sport that I didn't like, I don't think I would work as hard at at it, if that makes sense. You know, you have to love what you do, in my opinion. Um, There's obviously different circumstances for everyone, but I love gymnastics so much, and I had such a, you know, this, like, burning passion to compete at the Olympics, and I just, I felt that if I did everything in my power to get there, I really truly felt that I could be there one day, and I, I think it's also about surrounding yourself with the right people 
to get you there. Um, you know, I think that just having my family at home not being on me, you know, even when I came home from practice, you know, they would ask how was practice and I would say good or if I wanted to talk about it, I would. If I didn't, I didn't talk about it. And, you know, having that and not having to be, you know, questioned about how was practice. Did you get a new skill? Did you get this? You know, my parents just wanted me to be happy and they knew, um, you know, lucky for me, I'm, you know, I, I guess lucky for my parents. I'm one of those people where if something is upsetting me, I usually will talk to them about it. So they knew that if something was bothering me, I would go to them. So they kind of just trusted me and my coaches to do the training. And then when I was home, they would obviously support me, but we would I was just Allie at home and I was one of four. So it was not about gymnastics when I got home, which was very important for me. And I think it's also very important for my siblings as well, because, you know, of course, even with my life right now, when I'm home, it's very important when we are, you know, at dinner, we are talking about my other siblings and not talking about what I'm doing, because I, I think that can be sometimes tricky, you know, if I'm out with my I'm you know, I have two younger sisters and they are 18 and 16. So sometimes I just want to have, you know, a day with them. And, and sometimes, you know, people are, you know, asking about me or if they're at school, they're asking about me. And so you just, when we're at home, you know, we really try to make sure that it is about the other three and making sure that it's not just about gymnastics all the time. Cause that's not only not fair to me, cause you don't want to talk about something 24 seven, but also not fair to the people around you too. But I would definitely say that I always feel like my personality is when I'm doing something, I think you should do it with 100% of your energy and, you know, the best that you can do it. Um, and I think it's also that being said, that's impossible to do everything 100%. So I think it's okay to say, this is not going to work for me right now. Maybe in the future we can do that because you know, everyone is busy. And I think people are always, you know, coming to different people with different ideas or different favors or different things. And, you know, I think sometimes we live in a world where sometimes you're afraid to say no. But I am learning that, you know, it's better to I feel that way. Yeah, it's better to say be honest and just say right now my plate is full or, or right now I just I'm working so hard on this thing that in the future, let's revisit it because I think it's better to be honest and do it at a later time and do it to the best you can do it than just try to do so many things. And then that's not healthy for you either. That was great. <laughs> Thank you. I'm working on it myself, but it is hard. It's sometimes it can be very hard. And I think as women, sometimes it's hard to say no, you feel guilty or you feel this pressure or to weak. do. I yes. feel, I feel like, I think I feel such a, a panic in me sometimes. If I say no to something, it's like an opportunity that that will be the opportunity mm. that I'm somehow passing over that would change my life or that. And I, and it's not that I'm a competitive person. I don't think that I am, but I think that there is something about like, well, I should be doing that. You know, I should be the one that's like sort of taking on that responsibility. Mm -hmm. When you feel weak or, you know, nervous to say no, I do hope one day, you know, and there's a balance, but I think it is nice sometimes to feel, to take that moment to feel sort of empowered and proud of yourself for saying no, because it is hard to do that, but we can't do everything. And, you know, I think what I try to do now that I'm learning that is like to try to give other people the benefit of the doubt, like, you know, because I'm, I do sometimes feel like our world can be so judgmental. 
So trying to have empathy towards other people and to not be so judgmental and give them the benefit of the doubt of like, if someone is like, oh, I asked her to do me this favor and she said no, or, you know, maybe it's just because they're going through something or maybe they're not, but they just want time for themselves because we often put ourselves last and we're always trying to please other people. And if you are not taking care of yourself, you're not able to help other people. Sometimes as women, you know, we feel the pressure to help as many people as we can, but you have to take care of yourself because, you know, you're with yourself all the time. And also I think you have to be selective because when you do say no and you have the courage and the strength and the sort of fortitude to say no, it really does sort of release all of this energy and focus that you can put on the projects and the things that you really want to be great and that you really want to commit yourself to. Yeah. I mean, I even feel sometimes bad with like if a friend asks me to hang out or, you know, go to like a late dinner, I have just been... Don't ever go to a late dinner. That's the worst. (laughs) I have been just beyond exhausted. I mean, like the last like few, I mean, especially the last year has been just really taken a toll but I mean even before that just all the training and the Olympics is it's not only physically exhausting but just the pressure is mentally exhausting and so you know now that I'm have you know a little bit more I guess freedom with my schedule and I am home a little bit more there are times where you feel bad if you just want to stay in and I feel like a lot of people feel that way oh I don't feel bad about that at all (laughs) pregnancy has been amazing for me because I just feel like I have like an automatic an automatic pass. Yeah. I just can be like, sorry, I just I can't, I'm too tired. I can't go out. Yeah, I mean, I My say I'm too swollen. tired too. <laughs> but I think that sometimes it's just okay to not do anything and to have that time for yourself. And I also realize because sometimes you're afraid your friends are going to be annoyed. But now the friends that I surround myself with are like, oh, I totally understand. I hope you take care of yourself and I hope you have a great night. Where like when I was younger, you know, as you grow older, you realize, you know, the people you want to be around, but you feel like a little bit more, I guess, sometimes judged if you don't want to go out and hang out with everyone. Maybe other people don't feel that way, but I guess um, I sometimes did at times. So I think it's also like I talk about surrounding yourself with good people that will understand and will get if you say no, even if it is to a good friend, they should be understanding. And, you know, we it's about valuing yourself and, and taking care of yourself. No, you don't want any friends that are going to make you yeah. feel guilty about not wanting to go to dinner at I don't 10 have, p.m. I don't, I don't have that, that anymore. Sucks. But I mean, I feel like you've never had that before where you're like, you've of been invited. Of course I have. Okay. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I've like had friend breakups over those kinds of things. Got to give the benefit of the doubt sometimes. You do, but I'm really an old lady at heart. I really like, I like going I to dinner too. at 6.30. I'm drinking chamomile tea right now. I'm I know. <laughs> she really is drinking chamomile tea. It's relaxing. It's so relaxing. Unstyled podcast is made possible by Refinery29 and Airy, your body positive go-to for intimates and loungewear. You know exactly what you'd want to wear while binge listening to your favorite podcast. Never retouched and always real, Airy gives you the everyday pieces that make you feel confident, strong, and always the real you in your own style. Your book, Fierce, 
just essentially your memoir, came out in November of 2017. Yes. Which is pretty much around the same time that you came forward alleging abuse against mm-hmm. the the USA gymnastics doctor, Larry Nasser. Mm-hmm. How did that actually kind of dovetail at the same time? Because mm-hmm. so much of what you talk about in, in your incredible book has parallels to a lot of what was being discussed in the news, you um, providing a statement during his sentencing hearing. Um, Can you just tell us about just like these two events sort of paralleling? Mm -hmm. So I've actually, it's interesting, I've been asked that question more recently, which it's almost a year after, um, but I'm glad that you asked that question. I would have asked it a year ago if I could get you in the studio a year ago, but still, (laughs) here it is now. I'm (laughs) I'm glad that you asked me because... I decided to come forward with my story about the abuse because in a book, you have full control over what you want to say. A lot of people don't realize when you do an interview, when you even do an on-camera interview, you have no control over what they are going to play. You have control over what you say, but you know you could give a three-hour interview and the segment on air could be three minutes. So they're not including a very large portion of your story. I spent months and months and months going back and forth on there was just one chapter that covered this the part about the abuse. There's nothing graphic in it. I personally get very triggered whenever I read something that has graphic information. And so I just didn't want anyone to to feel triggered reading the book. And I hope that nobody does. I really tried as hard as I could um, to make and that's that chapter of your experience. Yes. Yeah. And. I just wanted it to be something where an adult could read it to a child at a very young age and they would still be able to get little bits and pieces about it's not just about stranger danger. It is unfortunately an adult, someone you can trust can be hurting you. And if anyone is ever hurting you or making you uncomfortable, even if you're not sure if it is abuse, I want to encourage anyone to ask questions. But I was so nervous, of course, to come forward because it's very personal and you know, it's just, it's, it's scary. And so I had the final say over what I wanted in it, which was very important to me. The publishing company that I worked with, they were so awesome. I, I didn't know what to expect. And I didn't know if they were going to say, well, we need a little bit more drama here. This, they were not like that at all. Um, everyone likes drama, <laughs> you know, but I know, I know you're making, <clears throat> but they were not like I'm that at all. They were it, awesome. Believe me, I'm an editor. I know, I, I know a good headline really like, you know, there is enough drama in the story already. So there doesn't need to be any more. Yeah. You know, obviously you talked about being, um, hesitant about sharing your story. You were scared, understandably so. But do you think the process of writing the book really kind of prepared you for just like, you know, taking on that role to be more public and to really, really be the face of this particular portion of the Me Too movement. I guess I never imagined how much support that we would all be getting. And I also didn't really understand how many people would listen to our story. So it it has been just so incredible and just so grateful for the support and so grateful for everyone who has been helping us push for change because there's no one that can do this alone there's so much so many people that are fighting for us so we are so grateful and I never I guess I didn't really know what to expect I was just so nervous for that the story to come out how did you feel after it did I will tell you that but I did I'll give you an example of how mentally draining 
writing the book was because you are reliving your best and your worst moments and everything in between. And even just like the highest highs at the Olympics, you're I'm literally reliving, you know, just like walking out and feeling like I can't breathe in my chest and you're trying. I really wanted the reader to feel like they were right there with me. And so I felt exhausted. I remember there was one time I went for a walk outside and I walked for 10 minutes, walking, not running, and I almost passed out. And I was so tired that I had to call my dad to pick me up because I couldn't walk back to the house because I was so weak. And for people that don't understand how hard it is to go through something really traumatic, I mean, everyone deals with it differently, but it is very, very hard. And also to do, I didn't know how people were going to react and I wanted you know, people to feel like I was helping them, you know, it was very, very hard. So I was just exhausted. There are still days where I feel like I can't even walk for 10 minutes. But I think that's why I talk so much about self care. Now it is so important and to really listen to your body. But after it came out, 60 minutes aired the piece. And I actually watched it on the plane with my mom. We were on the plane on the way to New York because I was doing the Today Show the next morning. So 60 Minute aired that night. And as the first time you saw it? Yeah, live. Yeah, that's what I mean when you you don't have any idea what they're going to say. So that is also very nerve-wracking. Sometimes after doing an interview, even if I feel it went great, I'm just like, you know, the 60 Minute piece, I believe we did an interview for four hours and they were great to work with. Um, but obviously the piece on on TV is 10 minutes long. So I was like, I, I don't know what they're going to pick. And there's obviously so much of the story to tell. So we watched it um, at, and it was as we were landing. And I remember the flight attendant kept, you know, you know, talking as we were landing as as they're supposed to. But we were just like, it would pause the screen. So we then after it was aired, we watched it again online. But it was very interesting. And I felt like people were getting off the plane, like kind of like smiling at us because we were still sitting there watching it. But I felt really, I felt a weight lifted off my shoulders in that moment. And I just didn't read anything online. The same thing right now, like I really just try to focus on the support that I get in person because if I go online, I know there are people that don't understand abuse. There are just some people out there that are never going to care about abuse because there are a lot of abusers out there. So those abusers obviously are not going to be supportive. So I do my best just to focus on the support. There's so many people in the world. You just you can't please everyone as much as I would like to, as much as I would like everyone to be safe. The thing that's been really hard for me is to grasp how people don't agree with people speaking out. I think that is more concerning for me. Some people just don't want to talk about abuse at all. And that's a big problem because when you're not talking about it, then people feel like they have to suffer alone and they're afraid to come forward. And obviously the Me Too movement has been so incredible and so needed and we have to keep telling the stories. It's not just about my story or you know other Olympic gymnast stories. It's also not just about Hollywood um, stories. It's about sharing everyone's story because everyone's story is important. It doesn't matter if you are a well-known person or not. You know, I would love to see the media covering anyone's story. You know, it doesn't matter if you're well-known because everyone's story is so equally important and so needed to share because abuse is everywhere. But that's also another thing that's been the hardest part is just so many fans will come up to me, you know, even at the grocery store or at the mall or at 
at the airport, wherever I am, and they share their story about being a survivor also. And that has been very hard just to see how many people out there are really suffering because abuse isn't just something in the moment. It carries with you for the rest of your life. And some of them actually tell me it's their first time sharing the story. With you yeah. right there. Yeah, and it just it makes me so sad how many people out there are survivors of abuse. And, you know, we, we will never know how many are out there. But it really is something that is so needed to talk about and to help people, you know. So it is, it's just, it's awful. And also I want to say, like, I think our society talks a lot about women being survivors, but boys and men, there are also a lot of survivors of sexual abuse out there. Um, You know, I think... Look at what's happening in the Catholic Church right now. Yeah, there's a lot. And it's, it is devastating and just I mean devastating isn't even a a good enough word to describe how awful it is and how disturbing it is but it it just it's just going to keep unfortunately we're going to keep hearing more and more stories because the abuse is it's it's everywhere it's not just in sports it's not just in Hollywood so you read a 13 minute statement it was I've read it so many times Mm. One of the things you talked about in in your statement, which I thought was really, and you you kind of alluded to it earlier, is just about, you know, it was directly to to Nasser. And you basically said, I thought it was me. I just thought you were weird. Mm -hmm. I felt uncomfortable. And I think that that was so important to identify how, how kind of mysterious it can be. And And confusing and confusing that you felt like you were the person overreacting Mm. about it. And I think that it has a lot to do for some reason it stayed with me because I think it's about a betrayal, a betrayal of someone that you sort of give the benefit of the doubt to that you trust, Mm -hmm. that you're supposed to trust, that other adults are telling you to trust. And what you're also really confronting now is the betrayal of the industry that you love so much. You said at least twice earlier in our. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Conversation, like how much you love gymnastics. Mm -hmm. How does that feel to be defending the honor of this sport and to really be confronting Mary Lee Tracy you actually went, you know, took to social media and you basically said that this appointment is a slap in the face. I mean, how does that feel? What do you, when did you really sort of recognize that your role in this was going to be so much bigger? Well, you know, to be honest, in the very beginning of the week for the sentencing, I did not want to speak. I think I even tweeted out that I wasn't going. I just felt like it was going to be too much for me. I was really nervous. And then Wednesday night, I was in New York, and I saw Kyle Stevens say, little girls grow into strong women to destroy your world. And then I started watching other clips of other women speaking and young girls, and I just realized in that moment I didn't have to be alone and I didn't have to feel alone anymore, that this was going to be the start of 
a sisterhood and an army that was going to fight for change. And I remember I called my mom and, you know, I said, I, I want to go. And I said, I want you to be there with me. So she, of course, came. And, you know, the next day I had actually a full day in New York. And then I flew to Lansing, Michigan that night. And I did not have a speech or anything. So I was writing it that night. And I think it just came when I look back now, it was very long. And I don't know how it came together so quickly. I think I just um, my mom was saying she had never seen me like that, like from the moment that she she met me in New York so we could fly together so she could be with me while I was writing the speech and just to be there to support me. Because you don't really want to fly for a few hours by yourself when you're like going through something so scary. And I was very grateful that my mom, that New York is so close because I live in um, Massachusetts. So she came and, you know, my mom said she never seen me like that where just I was like in the zone writing my speech, even just like went to bed later because we got in late, then got up early and was working on my speech and practicing it. And of course I was nervous, but at the same time I felt kind of a combination of feeling pissed off and also nervous to see him, but also just realizing that, you know, we felt we were empowered together, being there with each other, yeah, to be together and to not feel alone. And um, I don't know, just I felt, I remember when I started speaking, I remember I locked eyes with Larry Nasser, and I remember for a second I felt a little bit shaky and I took a second and I was like I'm not gonna be nervous I'm in control now he has zero power and I just blocked everything out and I forgot that there was cameras there and people behind me and I you know I just kind of like went at it and like right after I finished speaking I just felt like I totally collapsed I was beyond exhausted just because I you know for the last I don't know, the night before and that morning just working so hard on the speech and just feeling such this intensity to do right by also myself, but also speaking on behalf of the other people, but also the survivors in the room, the survivors that hadn't come forward yet, but also just any person out there who's ever been wronged by an organization. And But I did not realize how many people would see the speech in court, and I did not realize how many people would care and how many people would be so supportive. But then it, you know, it also became sort of this thing where instead of, you know, when you do an interview, I talk about you don't always have the control. Not always. You really never do have the control over what's put out there. So I started tweeting things out instead of doing an interview if I just wanted to say a few sentences about how I felt about something and that was easier for me. It can be very draining and exhausting and so when I talk about learning to say no, you know, there's a lot of times where you're asked to do interviews and I'm just like I would physically, I used to physically get headaches after each time I would do an interview and then I've started meditating to help with that and it has really helped me a lot in just making sure I'm staying hydrated but Every time I would talk about it, so I was like, I'm just going to tweet something out. And then it luckily, it would a lot of times it would get picked up. So that would kind of that was helpful and also helping me take care of myself, but get what I wanted out there. The thing with, um, you know, Mary Lee Tracy, she was not my coach, but she has been one of the most vocal coaches about not supporting the survivors, and she even defended Larry Nasser after 50 survivors came forward and after they found the child pornography. 
So that to me is very concerning and very alarming. You know, USA Gymnastics keeps saying they really care and they think about the survivors with their decisions, but you're picking one of the most vocal people. And they're also, you know, when you talk to her gymnast, a lot of them have a lot of stories to say that are not positive. Um, and when you are looking at an organization that is so there's so much wrong with it and so much that needs to change. You just can't have somebody in charge of young girls. She was supposed to be in charge of the developmental group, which is, I don't know the exact ages, but it is like 10, 11, 12, 13, sort of that age range. You cannot have somebody that is making girls afraid to come forward. And when they are coming forward, they are not believed. That's just, that's, that's asking history to repeat itself. And if there's any, you know, gymnastics listeners out there, I did do a podcast on Gymcastic and I said, you know, if you see somebody victim shaming somebody online, you know, maybe they just need to be educated. It's not something where you need to just throw them out and not be nice to them. But I kind of was more because I saw some fans say, well, you know, maybe this is a point where she needs to be educated and she shouldn't be kicked out right away. Um, but I want to clarify she 1 million percent needs to be educated, but you cannot be in a position of power in charge of young children when you do not understand abuse. You can't be in that position while you need to be educated. And being educated on that is not going to take her five minutes because it's been like this for a very long time. Um, you should believe a survivor when one person comes forward, let alone 50, and after child pornography is found. We need somebody in a high position of power that really truly understands it and willingness to learn from the past and to be able to change. Could you that know, be you? I've never coached before, so I couldn't take that position. I would love to be involved in helping to pick somebody, but this is just my thought. I almost am wondering if there should be more than one person in charge because I really like feel like, yes, but it has to be, I feel like if there's one person in charge, at least the way that it was, it's such a power struggle, but I do think there needs to be somebody specifically at every training camp that is watching out because there are a lot of coaches that are very strict with what the girls are eating and there's a lot of fear put in it so that people are afraid to speak up about something or there's just too much training. There's a lot that, you know, there's a lot that enabled Nasser, but also just Nasser aside, there's a lot that needs to change. You can, there's a better way. Cause I, I've even asked in an interview of, well, don't you think it needs to be hard? And I was like, nobody's saying that we don't want to work hard. I love working hard, but you can be fed properly. You can be treated like a human being. You can be respected. And you can have a good doctor that doesn't abuse you and you will be even more successful. You've obviously like established such an important role as a role model to young women. And I know you love Aerie as much as I do. The brand, it's been such an incredible advocate for young women and you are one of their role models. What has it meant to you to be, to take on that responsibility and to be a role model for them? I love working with Ari. They're so awesome. I've honestly always wanted to work with them. And I met with Jen. Jen is the president and she is absolutely amazing. I've honestly never worked with a brand before where when you show up on set for a photo shoot, it's like, like I showed up on set one day and just everyone was dancing and singing and it was at like eight in the morning. And I was just like, I've never, it was so awesome though. Just, that's really how they are all the time. Like they just want to make sure that everyone is having a good time. 
and they really, really genuinely care, you know, and you can see that when you see their campaigns and when you scroll through their website, you see so much diversity and so you see real girls and real women and it's just, it is so cool to be a part of it and, but it's, because sometimes when you see, you know, an ad and you think it's cool and you wonder what the people are like, at least I do, you wonder what the people are like, you know, behind, you know, in that meeting room, how they're coming up with this idea and this concept and just, to be able to get to know them and to actually see how passionate they are about it is very genuine and very real. And I think that they that shows what the whole company is all about. And also the fact that, you know, a lot of brands, a lot of fashion brands have ambassadors, but the fact that they've really labeled you and, and, and some of the other women that are involved as role models, like you have a responsibility, mm-hmm. you know, sort of signing on to be to be one of those women, to be one of those faces you know, what does it mean to you right now, especially at this like at this stage of, you know, your career, your life, you know, to really be there for young women? It means a lot to me to be able to be heard. I recognize and understand that not everyone when they share their story is supported and heard. So I take that very seriously. And I hope I try my best when I speak. I really try to do the best that I can to make it relatable so that if somebody back home is listening that they feel like I'm relatable to them like I I really care about that and I really want to help but I do have to say after an interview I am you know replaying what I said because I also just want to make sure that you're saying the right thing and sometimes when you say something you mean it one way but somebody could take it a different way and you know I don't want to offend anyone I want to make sure that people also realize that I am human and I'm trying the best that I can do to be that's you part know. of being a role model though is being vulnerable and being yeah, able to is. show that you can make mistakes yeah otherwise how can you actually like become great at anything yeah that, I mean Fourth that place. is very true yeah exactly it's very <laughs> I mean how, when you make mistakes you learn from it but it is speaking about something so important and you know it's it's something that I just want to make sure that I do right by everyone and be able to help as many people as I can, because I know there are more people than people imagine that are suffering in silence. And, you know, with Aerie, they're very passionate about helping girls feel comfortable in their own skin. And body positivity is something that is so important to them. And, you know, it's something that is very important to me. And as, you know, a girl, I think that everyone can relate sometimes to feeling self-conscious or insecure. And I I think that the more that we talk about it, the more we can help people out. Um, Men and boys also can be insecure. It's not just women. So I hope that one day we can get to a point where men and boys are also comfortable sharing their insecurities as well, because I feel like there's so much pressure on men to be really tough and very secure and they're not allowed to complain about something and I just think that's ridiculous and there are men men can be insecure too and they are so why don't we just start supporting each other believing each other having empathy for each other and just have the conversation so we can all help each other out and I think the other thing that's really wonderful about Ari and why I'm so grateful to them for even wanting to be involved in this podcast is um the fact that they set such an important example for other yes, companies I hope they follow in their I hope other brands follow. Exactly. Is to really like No Photoshop too, which is which exa- is incredible. I was just about to say that. Yeah. I think that, you know, really enlisting very specific, very defined guidelines, you know, mm-hmm. about how you run as a company and the and the way that you actually project not just like in ad campaigns and sort of publicity, but really like walking the talk. Mm-hmm. And I think each of you, you know, that they have 
that they've selected for this group. I really feel like you guys embody that. Thank you. I, I think it's very, it's crazy to me that, you know, that more brands don't follow in their footsteps because I just don't understand. I mean, I travel a lot. So when I'm at the airport and you see the cover of these magazines, these beautiful women are so photoshopped and you can just tell their skin has been so airbrushed. And it just, it doesn't make sense to me because every woman is beautiful and unique in their own way. And I don't understand why, what's the need for such Photoshop. It doesn't make sense to me. And it also, you know, creates such a bad, I guess, you know, even with like social media, it just, there are a lot of studies that show that it makes people more insecure. And I can totally relate to that. I found in the last few months, I don't go on it as much as I used to. And it is so important to have that balance because you do find yourself, yeah, you do find yourself not even realizing it, you're comparing yourself to somebody else and we should all just try but to But you be know the- nothing about their real life. Yes, yes. And that's the thing. It makes everyone's life look perfect. And that's why, again, I, I try so hard to be so honest because I think people think just being an Olympic athlete that it's always easy and I'm so talented and they see those quick moments at the Olympics of being successful and they don't know all that. I mean, obviously now people know, you know, what it was really like but I think also the same with when you see in an ad or in the cover of a magazine someone's life looks perfect and nobody's life is perfect and um, I wish that you know more brands would show more realness and real raw things which I think it's definitely changing and when you look through magazines they're definitely covering a lot of really great things and I do feel hopeful that things are going to keep going in the right direction but I do hope that more brands will follow in Aries footsteps and their latest campaign was just it's just amazing to scroll through their site and see just the diversity and just it's so awesome they had just a ton of women and girls reach out to them and and send videos of why they wanted to be in the campaign and Aries just picked so many people and they got to be at the shoot so it was it was really cool that's amazing Allie Raisman, it has been <laughs> such a pleasure to have you on Unstyle today. Thank you for today. having me. <laughs> yeah, thank you for, for just speaking out and for being such a strong role model to all of us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Please stay tuned for a conversation with Aries Jen Foyle on finding your voice as a leader and a brand. Jen Foyle. From Ari, it is such an honor to have you on Unstyle today. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited. So I'm so happy. I've been wanting to get you on the show for a while. We are we could not be more thrilled to be partnering with Ari on this season of this podcast. And there's a lot of reasons why I think there's so much synergy between Refinery29 and between the conversations that we host on on the show. You as one of the core leaders of the company and really, you know, one of the shepherds of the brand, you know, you've had a huge role, played a huge role in designing what the the mission of, of Airy has become over the last decade. And you've been there for, is it eight or 10 years? 10 years. 10 years. Why don't you tell us about your trajectory while you've been at Airy and just how the sort of impact of this brand today and really the role that it's playing in, in retail and just like the... I think the thing that excites me most about Aerie is just the example that it sets for all of the other competitors that, you know, you go up against. And I think it's really admirable, you know, how you actually frame women and women's lives and their strength and and also their originality. So tell me about what that path has been like. 
Well, I've been in retail for over 26 years now. I keep on saying 19, and I'm realizing now I'm 52 years old. And I had traditional retail background, right? I was at Bloomingdale's for 11 and a half years, went to the Gap while khakis were swinging, and everything was just... Oh, you mean when they were doing the dances? <laughs> yes, I was there. Oh, my there. God, I love that. I was there. Were you working with Mickey? With Mickey, and I Aww. saw Mickey yesterday. You did? I saw Mickey at a panel. I had He's a, a fave of yes, mine. Yes, we had an all-women's panel yesterday. And we uh, had Jenna Lyons on the show, too. Uh, Amazing. Yeah. I worked with Jenna. Then I went to J. Crew. So I worked oh, with Jenna. Mm-hmm. Um, when it was a great, it was really a great time at J. Crew. We really, that's when we really revamped the brand. And I took a brief stint. I had been with Mickey. I like to talk about Mickey because honestly, he was my mentor. And seeing him yesterday just, it was amazing. And for anybody um, who doesn't know, Mickey Drexler was the former CEO of J. Crew. Before that, he was at the Gap. And yeah, he's kind amazing. of a retail legend. Yeah. When I was at J. Crew, I was the chief merchant there. So. And um, I just thought it was time for me to venture out on my own. And I went to Calypso for two years, uh, which was a really unique boutique chain, you know, not a very big operation, but it really got my bearings on how to run an entire operation. Were you the CEO there? I was the president, but Mm -hmm. they didn't have a CEO. So I was the acting CEO reporting to a PE firm, a private equity firm. Wow. And I really learned a lot. You know, it was was 2008, so you could only imagine. And I I spent two years there and I did, uh, you know, I felt like I really added a lot of value to that brand and got it back on its feet. The former founder owner exited the business, uh, Christian Anciel, and she was an amazing woman. I did my best to repair that business, but I knew I had to get back. St. Bart's. Yeah, I remember so much. It's like the St. Bart's like lifestyle, right? Just takes you away. Uh, (laughs) So anyway, and I had a great time there and it was everything I loved anyway, being at Crew or The Gap, color and just, you know, optimism and beauty and but I knew I wanted to do something else. And so this airy opportunity came about. And at first I was like, no way, I'm not going back into mall-based retailing. I'm not going to ever do that. But then I thought, you know, there is total white space out there for just an intimate apparel-based brand for younger women because we position our brand for about a 21-year-old. However, we're getting moms into the brand right now. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm into the brand. I know, I'm a too. mom now. Hey, I'm wearing one right now. I'm wearing my favorite bra, the Real Me Bra. But um, I knew there was white space and they had a pretty decent foundation. It was, it was, you know, around 150 million um, when I started, but it wasn't even about the volume. It 150 was million what? Dollars. Sorry. Okay. Top, top line. It wasn't about that. It was just, I was like, you know, there's only one brand out there that dominates this, this specialty sector. Victoria's Secret? Yes. Yes. And I just thought, oh, I can't. My little that can't girl, be it. I do not want my little girl to have her first experience shopping for a bra at Victoria's Secrets. And that's really what inspired me. And I will tell you that uh, it was at around 2010 and I started and we needed to revamp the brand a little bit. We How had long had it been around by at that point? Um, I believe it started in 2007. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure around mm-hmm. there. It, it's hard to, they had tables, they had undies tables in American Eagle yeah. in a few stores. Um, so 2007, 2004, maybe in a few American Eagle stores, 2007 when we really pre- got the table presented, but it was only a table of undies. Wow. So that's all the brand really was um, in the beginning. And then when I came, they had standalone stores, but the portfolio needed to be revamped entirely. And that took time, um, more time than I actually thought. But during it, as we were trying to grow the businesses and get the right product in and everything, I just, we were having a hard time breaking through. And this is where 
um, the magic began. So 2014, Mm -hmm. it was coming off a weekend with my daughter. Mm -hmm. I went shopping with her and she said, mom, she looked in the mirror. She goes, do I look beautiful? I mean, I, I almost died. I was like, Maggie, first of all, you are beautiful from the inside out. And it really is what's about on the inside, Maggie. And that's all that matters. What do you think prompted her to ask you that? Just going through something? Everything that they observe every day. So she says this. And then we have a creative review that week. And my head of creative, we were looking at windows with, you know, typical marketing in the windows, big shots of women. They were models, professional models. And he looks over at me and goes, Jen, these models aren't airbrushed. And I almost started to laugh. I was like, I did laugh. I go, what do you mean? I wouldn't have even noticed. Why would we ever airbrush our models? And that was it. That's when it really began. I was like, first of all, they get paid to be models. I mean, why would you even airbrush this beauty? And every woman's beautiful. And that's really where it took off. Um, We started the campaign then. Um, and we built and we so that come from you in that moment. It was just a creative moment. It wasn't, yeah. it's the team. It yeah. was really the team. They pulled it together. They presented it to me. And, you know, I think me being the leader at the time, or I still am the leader opening up and accepting yeah. it and saying, let's go for this. I think it was just a really magic moment. And like I said, with my daughter, it just, everything, um, really just, it was like alignment of the star. I, I it was perfect timing. I think the role of, of airbrushing photographs, it's just such a an important shift that's happened in the last um, five years. You know, even just the discussions around cover shoots, you know, where celebrities have been coming forward and kind of talking about the fact that they don't like the way that, you know, their images have been kind of recast on a cover to sell more magazines. But really what it's doing is alienating a lot of people because who can really identify with these kinds of flawless images, especially when women are being tasked with having to deal with so much stuff in their mm-hmm. lives. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just so many demands on, on, there have always been a lot of demands on women, but I do think that the scrutiny um, applied to women and women and the image of women is just so harsh, mm-hmm. especially in our culture. And I think that Ari kind of coming out and making that declaration that they were not going to Photoshop and airbrush their images was so brave and really, really important in terms of, like I said, people in the industry hearing that. Because when you change and you're able to take a risk and really like put it all on the line and just say, we're going to do this and it works, it's like it just becomes a domino effect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you don't even realize how we're just, you know, completely brainwashed growing, you know, my generation growing up looking at Barbie doll, I mean, you name it around us. And, you know, I don't know if you've followed how the campaign has evolved, but what's amazing is we've really taken real to the next level. So for back to school this season, 2018, um, August, we launched real models. We did real casting, real customers, real women. They sent in themselves in their bras and it was open casting. And we had, you know, we had videos from them. They did self homemade videos. We had 1800 contestants. Wow. Uh, we narrowed it down to 51 because that was Did our... Did you document it? it oh, yes, like we have great... it all. Oh, amazing. It's amazing. But this is the part that's amazing. We showed girls with diabetic patches. We showed uh, girls with ostomy bags. We showed it all. Wow. We showed everything. Disabilities, um, a young girl with Down syndrome. She's a gymnast, Special mm-hmm. Olympian. These women are amazing. 
and we all have something to offer. And I will tell you, and I'm going to be very honest, it was this was even bolder, you know, than not airbrushing. This was showing women and and what they're really as made they up. are and, in and the world, as they are. And I have to tell you, when we went to launch it, I had a little lump in my throat. It was you have to look at it and say, why are we doing this to women? And then you see this beauty, the letters that I've received. We launched it day one. We had impressions, moms calling, moms writing in, daughters, everyone writing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I had a mother. I was on a ferry boat. A mom comes over to me. She's like, you know, I recognize you. Are you Jennifer Foyle? And I said, yes, I am. She goes, I wanted to thank you. And she called her daughter over. And she rolled up the daughter's sleeve, showed the the diabetes patch, Mm -hmm. and said, you've changed your life. She now goes out in her swimsuit proudly. This whole That's thing, beautiful. it's it's amazing. And I'm just proud that we're willing to take this type of stand. And honestly, what I'm even more proud of is retailers are following suit. And that I'm, I'm not saying we're the first and only, but I do think we're pretty in the forefront of this. And I think we can even do more. And I'm excited to deliver more to the customers. Well, what more do you want to do? Oh, we have a lot in store. Can you tell us anything? I have some secret sauces. Well... Let's just talk about we're going to get stronger about what really makes women tick. Mm -hmm. Uh, You just said it, you know, or we just talked about it. You just ran to see your little girl Mm -hmm. in the hospital, Mm -hmm. gave her a cuddle. Now you're here. You're doing this is what women are. This is what we need to talk about. Everything that we do. Thank God for women. Women are amazing. They They really, really are. I'd love to talk a little bit about role models, which has been such an important campaign and, and really bringing in some incredible voices and, you know, diverse voices Mm -hmm. into this program. Tell us about what Role Models is and and how it started. At one point when we were evolving the various campaigns, we decided that we should get some women out there that will celebrate with us and help spread the word about Aerie and and what we're doing in our mission. Allie Reisman uh, joined us last year. That timing, another moment that was unbelievable it was before she came out with the Olympic and her issues with sexual abuse. And the day before she went on TV, she called me. And we were literally signing our contract. We only brought Allie on because we thought she represented strong women, a gymnast. Wow, look at her. This is a great Team girl. Team leader, yeah. Young. And, you know, for our girls, they could really look up to her. She said, and she told me the story. And she's like, how do you feel about this? I said, Allie, you're a victim. We love you. Come join Erie. Yeah. And um, go for it. We just saw her on Monday, in fact. Like, we, uh, the girl is amazing. And then she was on the Today Show this week, too, talking about and how she's going to take this forward. She means business. And unstyled. And unstyled. We're so happy to have her on the show. She's amazing. She really is. Powerful. We, you know, we actually have real talks with these girls. Mm-hmm. Um, they come into our store. Every time we bring one of these girls into one of our stores, it's a, it's a sellout. And people are in tears. It's, they're just amazing powerful, real women. And um, I'm proud that area is part of it, you know, really. I feel like we're following them. I feel like we're just the baby and they're like really the ambassadors and the the lighthouse for our brand. No, I think I think you all work together. I think it's all, you know, kind of facilitating a much larger conversation that's happening nationally and globally. I think that women are so hungry for those kinds of conversations. Definitely. And I think just want to know that they're not alone in their in their fears and their worries and their pain, you know, and in, you know, their, their hopes and dreams too. I think Mm -hmm. that 
there is such a sense of isolation when you feel different or other. And I'm just so thrilled to have Ari, you know, participate in this podcast and really help to elevate those kinds of conversations throughout the show. Thank you. Jen Foyle, it's been such a pleasure having you on on Style today. Thank you so much for working with us on this podcast. Oh, thank you so much. We love partnering with you. Thank you. I hope you're inspired after hearing from Ali Raceman and Jen Foyle. For even more unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to the Unstyled podcast on iTunes and rate us while you're there. You can head to refinery29.com to find this episode and more. And make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Bridget Todd, associate produced by Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena. Copy support was provided by Kelsey Miller. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with Katya Blickfeld. See you then.